Armstrong Easter offering if you're a good Southern Baptist. And uh, so we take that up and uh, we will be doing that for the, uh, for the remainder of the month. So if you'd like to give towards this, I mean, there's a lot of great things going on here in North America. It goes to uh, support mission projects, missionaries. Uh, many of you know that our border, our Southern border is, is in the news a lot. There's a presence of them down there trying to minister in those situations. And so there's all kinds of opportunities that are given to this. And if you'd like to give towards this ministry, uh, just on the missions line on the offering envelope in front of you, you can just put Easter offering. It'll go where it needs to go. So uh, I hope you'll take that very seriously this year. Well, evidently, I was a bad influence on some, ba- on some people. I started saying on some bad people last week. But anyway, uh, I-, I don't want to hear any more about my socks. Uh, <laughs> I didn't realize I'd be up here and you'd be able to see all that. But anyway, Willard has gone out and topped me. If you haven't seen his socks, have you show him his socks before he leaves? It's kind of embarrassing. You, okay, get, okay, there you go right there. Okay, that's too much leg, Willard, just a sock. But anyway, um, so anyway. Romans chapter one, if you'll go ahead and turn there. Let, let me just say this. I realize I was uh, partly raised in a uh, double-wide mobile home. So I know what it's like to hear the rain on a roof like this. And I know it'd be easy to nod off, but just kind of bear with me, if you will, this morning. Uh, we, we'll kind of plow through this t- together. Uh, I do want to thank you for braving the weather this morning to be here with us. Well, we're going to begin a new series today called Three Days. And what we're doing is we're focusing on different points of Jesus's ministry, especially his last days into the day of his ascension back to heaven. And so today we're going to focus on the garden and the cross. Next week, we're going to be looking at the resurrection, of course. And then two weeks from today, we're looking at the promise of his return and the return itself. So that's coming up uh, in two weeks. Today, however, I've entitled this message, A Day of Anticipation and reflection. Why anticipation? Because Jesus, the evening before he was to face the cross, is there anticipating what was in front of him. Now, there's also just before that moment, a time of reflection where he's there with his disciples, and we're going to be taking communion up here in a little bit. Uh, We're going to have communion. And what you'll find there is they're they're reflecting. He's he's calling on them to reflect what God has done up to that point. And so we've got all these things that are happening. So look at the introduction on your outline. Many describe these days that we're about to enter into as the week of passion. The word passion not only means strong emotion or strong desire, it also means extreme suffering and distress. We find passion not only in the life of Jesus, but also in the last horrifying days of his life. Now, as we begin to look at this, what I'm going to do is we're going to, and I've done this before, but I I have some information I think that's worth looking into. We're going to look at the contrast of two gardens that are mentioned in Scripture. The Bible records the stories of two monumental events that take place in gardens. The first, of course, is mentioned in Genesis, and it's the Garden of Eden. And we we know that when we're very familiar with the story that surrounds it. But listen to Genesis 2.8 as it records and talks about this garden. It says, the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. 
Now, now, all of a sudden, there's a place that God has established. He's put man there, and it is there that he is going to carry on an intimate relationship with the man. And, and of course, the woman will come later, and there will be this covenant relationship with God and man. But then, if you look to the next chapter, in Genesis 3, 24, look at what it says. So he drove out the man, of course, and the woman, and he placed cherubim, their angels, at the east of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword, which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So all of a sudden, we have the introduction of a garden, man's place there. The God of covenants, the God of, of, of relationship is there with the man. It says there's, a, there's an intimacy going on. And all of a sudden, they're being kicked out of the garden. What has entered? Of course, we know the story. Sin has entered God's creation. Now, they've been dispelled from the beautiful Garden of Eden. Now, look on your outline. A garden that brought ruin to the human race. And because of the sin of man, a garden marked by deception and willing defiance. I think so many times we make light of sin. You say, well, what do you mean make light of sin? Sometimes we just, we don't understand the consequences of it all. We don't understand what it costs a savior on our behalf to die for that sin that we take sometimes flippantly. And so what I want to do is I want to show you in Romans chapter one, Paul is stating the mindset of sin and rebellion. He's also talking about its ruin. And he's basically saying in chapters one, two, and three of Romans, he's like, here's where we are. This is what the garden produced. This is what generation after generation after generation of man and sin is on the trail and ruin is on the trail. He's saying, this is what it looks like. And he gives you that mindset. Romans 1, look at verse 22. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served a creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. For this reason, here it is again, God gave them up to vile passions for the women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men leaving the nat natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not, like to retain God in their knowledge. Here it is. God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death. This is a spiritual death and physical death, both. Not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. 
And then if you skip over to Romans 3, skip go a couple of pages, this was his conclusion about the whole matter of sin. In verse 10, he says, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understand. There's none who seek after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. You see what that first garden produced? I want you to look at the first garden and look at all the optimism and all the hope and all the joy and all the intimacy between God and man. And what you find there is this whole idea that that everything was good, everything was there, everything was in place, and then everything started moving towards ruin. Should I just give up? (laughs) But what you find here is what the first garden, this is the results of that first garden. But then thousands of years later, we discover another garden. It's called the Garden of Gethsemane. In Mark chapter 14, look at verse 32 here on the screen. It says, they came to a place. This is the disciples and Jesus, which is named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. The word Gethsemane means olive press, which olives, where olives are squeezed to produce something that is productive and useful. It's very amazing that today you can walk on the same grounds where Jesus prayed that evening. You can go there today. There's still olive trees. It's still an olive grove. It's a beautiful place. It overlooks the the old city in Jerusalem. And there he is, and that's where it goes. But here's what I want you to notice about this garden. Look at it. Look on, on your outline. It's a garden that brought redemption to the human race. The first garden produced ruin, but this one is going to produce redemption. So in Romans 3, look at it again. Look at verse 23. Here's the summation about sin. For all have sinned. We've all missed the mark and fall short of the glory of God. But here's verse 24. This is where the tables turn. This is where redemption comes in. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a perpetuation by his blood. The word perpetuation is the most misunderstood, most, uh, it's a word that you better get your mind around because that is what's really going on in the garden when Jesus is crying out to his heavenly father and saying, can this cup pass from me? Can we do it another way? It's because of this word right here. And I'm gonna show you that in just a moment. So the first garden, we find beauty and it leads to ruin. The second garden, we find torture and it leads to redemption. Next, we have the curiosity of the latter garden. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 22, Luke 22. Now, as you do, I want you to listen to this. To get to this latter garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, what Jesus had to do from where we know that he was, he was up around the temple He would have to make a journey outside the city walls. He would go down into a valley, which is called the Kidron Valley. Now, here's what you need to understand that's going on. Everybody there is there for the Passover. There's an estimation of 250,000 animals will be destroyed and slaughtered because of the Passover. I mean, there's blood in the streets. There's blood in the creeks. I mean... Everything is happening. There's, there's, the, the sacrifices are full-fledged. They're going strong. 
And Jesus would have to make his way outside that gate, go down into Kidron Valley. There was, there's, a, there's a little, uh, uh, the temple waste goes down into that valley. And what you find is probably blood flowing through the water. He steps over and he goes up to the Mount of Olives. Pretty steep climb, actually. He would have had to go through and come face to face with the sacrifice of animals, something that would remind him of what he was about to do that very next day. Notice that this garden, look on your outline, was a place of retreat. It's really cool when you start looking at what Jesus enjoyed in the scripture. When you read about his life, he loved his alone time. How many of you can relate to that? Like your alone time. But Jesus really liked his alone time because it was those times he got with the Father. And this was another one of those places. Luke twenty-two thirty-nine 39 says, coming out, coming from the city, coming down out of the ancient city, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was his accustomed, accustomed and his disciples also followed him. This was something that he did when he was in the city. He would go to the Gethsemane and pray. So this is where he would go to escape the crowds. This is where you go to pray. But something's gonna be different tonight. So look on your outline. We see it as a place of prayer. In Luke 22, verse 40, it says, and when Jesus came to the place, he said to his disciples, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he went and he, and he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw and he knelt down and prayed. Now think about what he says. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. What he's basically saying is, guys, it's getting ready to get real intense. It's getting ready. All this is coming to a head. The thing I shared with you about the meal just hours earlier, it's all coming to a head. Now what Jesus knew was he, he was about to be arrested. And he was getting ready to take that journey to the cross. And all of a sudden, all these things become, and what I read here is he's basically telling y'all it's gonna happen quick. It's gonna happen fast. The disciples many times heard Jesus pray. They even asked him to teach them to pray. But this prayer would be different. This night filled the night air. This prayer filled the night air with grief and despair. Much curiosity has been raised about this night. What was really going on? Was Jesus fighting the temptations of the enemy? Well, we saw that earlier in his ministry. Remember, he fought temptations of the enemy. There wasn't that much grief and despair. He just conquered the enemy with the word of God. So I don't think it was the enemy he was necessarily dealing with here. What's going on? What's really happening is you see something going on. It was obvious that Jesus was fighting his own humanity about what he was about to face. So this battle led to the anguish of the latter garden, number one, to physical anguish. Up to this point from the gospel accounts, we've seen Jesus courageously stand up to the religious establishment, boldly proclaiming God's kingdom is at hand, calmly facing death on numerous occasions, but, but now we, we have, we've never seen Jesus in the way that we're about to read right now. So look at 22, Luke twenty two forty two. He said, Father, if it's your will, take this cup from me. Lord, if there's any other way, let's do it that way. Lord, I, I don't like what's getting ready to happen. I'm not, I'm not, I don't, I don't, I'm not excited about this. This tells us this is gonna be different. And then he says this, 
Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. This is very, I love this verse 43. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. You ever sense angels come by your side sometime to strengthen you through things you never thought you could ever face or go through? How do you know that that happens? I'm reading it right here. It's very real. It's a real thing here. Verse 44, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Look at, look at the statement, sweat became like great drops of blood. The word light there could mean that it's, it doesn't necessarily have to be taken literally. However, and I've shared this with you many a times, there is a medical term for this rare condition. It is something that can happen. It's called hemodidrosis. It's a condition where someone under extreme agony and stress has the ability to sweat blood. Each sweat gland has a capillary that surrounds it. And under extreme pressure, the capillaries can dilate and burst. And that may be what we're looking at here. I want you to turn to Mark 14. This will be the last place I have you turn. I want us to look at it from a little different angle. Same scene, a little different angle. Now, here's what I want you to do as you turn. I want you to keep in mind that Jesus is not praying that he would not die. He faced death numerous times. I mean, of course, he was the one that also said, well, my time to, come, my time to die is not now, so he didn't sweat that. But he's not sweating death here. He knew his purpose for coming to the world was to die for mankind. Jesus had a human nature and that nature recalled from pain and suffering, but it was more than the physical anguish. Look on your outline. There was also emotional anguish that was here. In Mark chapter 14, verse 32, it says, then they came to a place which is named Gethsemane. We've already read this part. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch. In verse 33, it says troubled and deeply distressed. It means, here's what it literally means, that Jesus was horrified of the approaching events. Now, some of you are saying, that doesn't sound like my Jesus. That is your Jesus. But he's not horrified for what we tend to put the focus on. It's not that. There's something else that's behind the scenes that most that we don't see, but it happens on the cross. Martin Luther, the reformer, says this. This is the most astounding verse in all the Bible. Jesus seemed to be horrified. Think about it. The God-man is horrified about the upcoming events. Can you imagine the loneliness of the situation? You remember the quote he said on the cross? Father, why have you forsaken me? Probably the only time the father has ever forsaken a son. Now here's what we need to understand. It was on our behalf. It was because of what sin had done. That's the reason we don't need to take it flippantly. 
Each moment that passed seemed to bring him more and more loneliness and isolation, which brings us thirdly to the spiritual anguish. Look at Mark 14, 35. It says, he went a little further and Jesus fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Again, is there any other way? The sinless one was going to bear the sins of the whole world. He would experience the guilt of sin, the shame of sin, the isolation of sin, the disparity of sin. He would become sin and he knew how horrifying it would be. You know, I've done a little research and and, and I've shared this recently because it's something I've learned that's new for me anyway. And, And you remember when Jesus was standing at the tomb of Lazarus? You remember Mary and Martha came running out to him and said, my brother's passed. If you'd have been here, you know, he he wouldn't have died. And do you know what it says shortly after that? And Jesus wept. He wept. Doesn't say he shed a tear. He wept. He broke down. So many people have tried to guess, what is that? What is that all about? Some people say, oh, he was empathizing with those sisters. Oh, no, no, no. He, he, he was empathizing with, with Lazarus because he knew that if he raised him from the dead, guess what Lazarus was going to have to do at some point? Die again? I've even heard that. That's kind of where I hung out. But some people believe this, and this is where I'm coming down. Jesus wept because he saw sin's despair in those people. It was right there in front of him. You got to understand something. Jesus was here. If you didn't know this, he was here before Bethlehem. He was here before the garden. He was a part of the creation. He was there when the fall took place. He was there when sin started leading every generation to ruin and destruction. He has seen the disparity of sin. He has seen what it produces generation after generation after generation. And there he is faced with it in a physical way as the God man who's experiencing the disparity of sin right there in front of him. And it says he wept. I tend to believe that all the things that he saw down through the ages and everything, and the fact he was the God man, he was sitting there and it just kind of came on him in a heavy way. And that's where we were. His tears could have been for us. And the ruin that comes with the sin that's all around us and that we experience. Think about it, something holy, this, this God man, Jesus himself, someone who's holy and pure is about to become defiled. He knew that sin, uh, he knew what sin did, that it would cost one third of the angelic hosts their jobs basically. He knew what sin did to man. He knew of the horrors of sin and soon he would become sin and the wrath of God would be poured out on him. That is spiritual anguish. Look on your outline, the triumph of the latter garden. The word agony we read in Luke twenty-two forty-four not only refers to extreme suffering and distress, but can also refer to a athletic contest or even a battle. And it's the engagement of battle. Now, what battle or contest was Jesus in? Was it with the father? Absolutely not, because his whole life was about the father's will. He wasn't fighting against what the father desired. Was it with the enemy? Well, I believe he was certainly there, but he was battling about, he was battling what he was about to face. The triumph of the latter garden, look on your outline, was about the submission of a savior. 
In Mark 14, 36, it says, And Jesus said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. I want you to think about it. The torture that the Romans would put him through, the fact that he would be misrepresented by, by, by man, by the fact that nails would go through his flesh, crown of thorns on his head, punctured side, the, the beating, just, just the, the beating that he would take was enough to kill most men. All that, you would say that is what he was battling. No, it had nothing to do with that. You know why? Because none of that, listen, none of that would pay for our sin debt. You do understand that, right? The trials, the suffering, that wouldn't pay our sin debt. What's gonna pay our sin debt is what's gonna happen when he's on the cross and what the Father's gonna do to him. That's gonna pay the sin debt. And so that's what we're looking at here and that's what he's saying. Listen to his words. Father, if it is possible, make, may this cup be taken from me. The cup is not a reference to a wooden cross. It is a reference to divine judgment. That's what the cup represents. That, that is what Jesus is recalling from in the garden. All of God's holy wrath and hatred towards sin stored up since the beginning of the world is about to be poured out on him and he's sweating blood at the thought of it. By drinking of this cup, Jesus is saying yes to his heavenly father and no to his humanity. In the first garden, Adam and Eve said yes to their humanity and no to the heavenly father. Jesus' Jesus's humanity is saying let this cup pass from me. But his deity is saying, I must drink it. His purity is saying, let this cup of wrath pass from me. But his love is saying, I will drink it all in order to pay the price for our sin. Jesus brought triumph to mankind by submitting to his heavenly father, which led, look on your outline, to the sacrifice of the savior. In Mark chapter 14, look at verse 41. It says, then he, then Jesus came the third time and said to them, now, you know the story. He keeps going back to disciples and, and how does he find them? They're asleep. They must be in a mobile home with it raining. I don't know. There's something going on here. And the hours come, behold, the son of man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See my betrayers at hand. Everything I told you is, that was gonna come is being set in motion right now. Wake up. The activities of the garden, and here's what we need to understand. The activities of the garden set in motion the activities of the cross. I don't think we capture that many times. The garden led to the availability of the cross for us. So here's the application. Before there was a cross, there was a garden. The prayers of the garden created the path to the cross. The anguish and triumph of the latter garden proves the love that both God the Father and Jesus has for us. The scene of the garden, listen, in the last weeks of Jesus' life demonstrated two things to us, his love for us and the horrifying tragedy of sin. But many of us are still in the dark as it relates to God's love for us and the horrors of sin. Now, here's what's interesting. If you were to go and look at Mark chapter 14, if you were to read that, you'll find that the disciples 
did not really understand what was at stake. And just as the disciples, I'm afraid many times, we don't understand the full gravity of what Jesus did. Romans 6, 23. Isn't it amazing how when you start talking about the cross, you start talking about what it means. Isn't it amazing how it's almost that Romans, the book of Romans is a commentary of that. And it really is. In Romans 6, 23, it says, for the wages of sin is death. The payment, listen, the payment for your sin is death. You say, well, all of us are going to die. This is talking about a spiritual death. This is talking about one separated from the one that created you. This is being separated from the one who, who reached out to you with a redemptive plan to say, you know something? I'm here. I paid the price for your sin. And, and so he's saying that that's what's at stake. And then it says, but the gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. I don't know where you are this morning. I think for me personally, when I look at the garden and realizing it's the path to the cross, I think so many times I'm like you. I get so caught up in the nail-pierced hands. I get so caught up, caught up in, in all the tragedy that the Roman soldiers seem to do on Jesus. And, and, and that's something big. I think it does portray his love for us. But y'all, it was much more than that. The sinless one, listen, became sin. He identified with the shame that you may be feeling today with your sin. The despair that you feel with sin. He, he, all that was placed on him. You don't have to take that anymore. He took it for you. And, and that wasn't enough. Propitiation, that word. God's wrath satisfied, that's what it means. That wrath was poured out on him on the cross. That's what was horrifying to him. That his father's wrath would be poured out on him. For who? For all of us who accept him as our Lord and Savior. For all of us who come to him on the terms of the salvation that he set forth. What were the terms that we acknowledged that we're sinners? You're a sinner. We're all sinners. That little two-year-old that you love and a little sinner. <laughs> little sinner. That sweet grandma that, you know, you just, the sweetness just ooze out of her. The woman's a sinner. We're all sinners. But the gift of God is eternal life. Through whom? Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the workings of the cross, not what the Romans did to him, that wouldn't pay our sin. What God had to do to him, that's what paid our sin. So in these moments, I want to ask you to stand to your feet, if you will. Myself and Gary will be here at the front. I don't know where you are. If you've never reached out to this salvation before, I want to invite you to reach out. We'd love to take God's word and show you how you can enter into a special relationship with him. But maybe there's a second part to this for you. You remember, it's not just the anticipation, it's also the reflection today. Today, we're about to take communion. And listen, we, we've been warned about taking communion and not being right with God. We got to be right with him. 
So during this moment of invitation, maybe, maybe the thing you need to do is get right with God. Maybe it will take coming and getting around this altar and saying, God, I, I, I want to partake. I want to reflect this morning on what you did on my behalf. And I know right now as I stand here, I'm unworthy to do that. But I know you made a way for me to be. Maybe you need to re-enter into that relationship with him in a way that there's good fellowship. Not that you lost your salvation, but that you're in fellowship with him today. I don't know what it is. Maybe this is a church home God's called you to be a part of. We welcome you here today. Just do what God's calling you to do in these moments. You, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, we'll be here at the front. Whatever God lays on your heart, just do it. Would you do that for us?